Welcome to Making Movies is Hard, a podcast about the everyday struggle of being an independent filmmaker. I'm Mark Purcell. And I'm Timothy Plain. Each week we discuss filmmaking topics and give you our point of view on them, not as experts, but just as two filmmakers trying to figure it out for ourselves. Mm-hmm. All right, so I like that you what you wrote here. <laughs> We're going to be 100% <laughs> honest. We are both extremely busy right now, and this episode is like a last minute, sort of like, oh God, we're not, we didn't actually get a guest today. What the fuck are we going to do? And this is what we came up with. Um, mostly Timothy, I guess, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> well, this goes back to like the original format of the podcast, and even our intro says, like, each week we give you different topics and give you our point of view on them. And we just, we haven't done that in a while. The, we've been using the solo episodes mostly just to catch up on stuff, but we're going to go old school and talk about a few random topics that we decided we haven't talked about yet on the podcast, including a listener question. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and do we want to talk about what we're doing at all or do you want to just dive right into this stuff? I think we'll catch people up on that later. <laughs> okay. Sounds good. <laughs> All right. So listener question. You can't find out who this is from anymore. This is how old this tweet is. Oh that somebody, I, and I guess Twitter changed the way that you can search. Like you can't search like all of history. It only goes back so far. So I even like scrolled through the history of the MMIH podcast account to see if I could find who this is from. And I couldn't. So I apologize to whoever wrote this to us. Um, but it we did get it it has been in my notes for a long time and we're finally going to answer it yeah i i actually kind of remember this question um but uh yeah i have no idea who it's from <laughs> but hopefully that person still listens and hopefully they'll be like oh my gosh that was me that was my question so they can uh, tell us afterwards they'll be like and it's too late all right so we've built up this question like it's a big deal um here is the question <laughs> <laughs> is skype a good tool for holding a casting call what do you think, Timothy? It's a good tool, but it shouldn't be your only tool, right? Yeah. I mean, you should have lots of tools. So for Strange Thing, my first short film, I, I was primarily using Skype for, for my auditions because almost all the actors... Well, I did a first round of casting in the Bay Area, and that was like, you know, I found some good people, but I wasn't like sold on anybody. And then I did a casting call out of LA, and I I probably got, got like... I probably did about 20 to 25... Skype auditions, um, and I was able to record them all with a plugin that I had. So it was actually really, really useful. Um, but I don't know. Have you? I know you've used it before for auditions, but have you ever used it like, like for a ton of auditions? No, it's, we've used it only because we had no other options. I've seen it used in advertising a few times. Um, I've done like whole callback sessions with directors with like, uh, like if I think one time we were in Mexico. And we were casting some of our talent in Canada. And since we couldn't be in two places at one time, we were doing, we were holding callbacks over Skype. And so like at the casting facility, they would have like kind of your typical camera setup that you would see in casting. And then we were like on a computer at Skype and we were able to talk to the actors. But it's kind of weird because it's not like a real person being there. So the actors can't really hear the direction very well. And they would have to like, kind of come up to the computer and lean down and be like, Hey, what was that? Oh, okay. Got it. So it's like, it wasn't ideal, but if, if you're in a pinch and it's the only way you can be somewhere, it works. Right. And then I did it for over my dead body. Cause we had a few actors in LA we wanted to see. And, um, it was, it was okay. It's, it worked better when it was just like me and the actor and there weren't other people around like it was very personal right it was just like a regular skype session and the actor was sitting right in front of the computer it became a little weird when i had actors step away from the screen and then stand like six feet away from the computer and it was basically they would just perform and then they would come back so it's not mm. very interactive it's much more of like okay go and try this and then you watch it and then they'd come back what did you think of that I, I never, prefer- I never did that before. I um, yeah, I how did had, you do it? I just had them sit in front of their computer and just um, read for me. You know, oh, okay. I'm right into ca- right to right to me, right to camera, and uh, and then a couple times, um, you know, I, I wanted to see them like for the Chris character, I wanted to see them swing a bat, and so like I would have them find anything that was like a bat. Um, around <laughs> yeah. their house and swing it and yell, you know. So you um, can, yeah, see that action. 
Yeah, and that worked really well. And then for the guys, I had them do like a an evil an evil grin for like the final scene, like final shot in the movie, you know. So I could just see like so I had them read a scene, and then I was like, "Here's a special thing I want you to do afterwards." And so that was like a really good. I mean, I, I don't know. I think I think, think I've seen you do similar things, like where you you have them just do a scene, but then you also have them do something that's like specific to what you you're looking for for the part. Like some extra little bit that's not just, you know, a scene. Yeah, I think the swinging of the bat's a good example because that would be something that you wouldn't really think about and you wouldn't think is important. And you would cast like the best actor for the role and you'd be like, oh, I feel really comfortable with their acting style. But if you don't see how they physically move with something like a bat and you want something specific, like you want them to look badass like Linda Hamilton and Terminator 2. Yeah. You need to see it because they might not be able to. It's the same thing with pretty much any physical action like running if you want somebody to run you better like see them run in auditions because not everyone can run and make it look cool not everyone's tom cruise yeah no yeah most people aren't tom cruise in fact (laughs) tom cruise is especially good runner um i i really i'm not even joking like i will watch tom cruise cruise movies with with beth and we'll be like just excited to watch the running sequences because he's so fun to watch when (laughs) he's amazing yeah he's so good physically yeah, I mean that's the one you know I I don't want to well never mind I'm not gonna talk about that. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah uh, I was gonna say oh so I was on a movie once and um, this actor so brilliant great actor she was great um, but she needed to ride a bike in in a bunch of scenes actually it was gonna be like kind of a bigger part of the movie that she was like riding her bike around town but uh, she was so not good or not comfortable on a bike that I think they like. I think it's not even in the movie anymore. I think there's no bike stuff at, at what whatsoever. Well, it's like that kind of stuff can speak to character too, right? Like if like the, with the bat swinging thing, you might want her to feel, look a little uncomfortable because she's just a regular person holding a weapon for the first time in her life. But if your story is about like a bike messenger, let's say, you want them to look like <laughs> they ride a bike every day of their lives. Right, right. And I think you run into this a lot with um, anything with a weapon, like especially guns. Like, you know, when Hollywood does gun stuff, those actors go through training to like make it look like they know how to hold a gun. But I, I feel like there's so many independent films where they don't you don't think about that. And then people holding the gun just looks awkward and fake and, and, and not realistic at all. So you have to like you have to be careful about that kind of stuff. Totally. So going back to Skype auditions, um, yeah. have you ever hired anyone through Skype? I did. Um, Jeremy in Over My Dead Body was somebody I'd never met before, and I met him over Skype. Nice. Awesome. Yeah, I, I mean, me, yeah, obviously, I like David O'Donnell. You know, it's funny. That's how I found him was through a Skype audition. And then, um, yeah, um, what the heck? Lou, gosh. Uh Holly, yeah, Holly is from who was in Strange Thing with David. She was on Skype also, and then I worked with David on like two other projects, or at least one other project since then, and we've become you know like like film friends. So um, that was really awesome that 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 came from a Skype audition in the very beginning. And then I think there's another guy uh, for another project that I hired through Skype um, that I had never met in person, but we had talked online, and then we did a Skype audition. And um, I liked him and the director liked him. So then we, we hired him too. So yeah, I mean, it, it's been really useful for me personally. Like, I, I think it's great. But, you know, obviously in person is much better. And I mean, it can get frustrating with the lag sometimes, you know. Now that we do the podcast all the time, we're used to that. Yeah, because we do <laughs> up until recently or like right now, actually, I should say we've done almost every episode through Skype. So we use it for the show, um, which has been fantastic. But uh, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, I feel like you always want to be in person, right? Like person. And I, I like videos, too. Like when people um, prepare videos for you because um, you really get a sense of their ability to perform. And you kind of get a little bit of of an idea of like their professionalism and their level of dedication to the project through the way they prepare through a video audition. Um, And I mean, I guess you can't necessarily judge actors for like not, you know, putting extra presentation into their video um, auditions because they do so many of these things all the time. Right. Um, Such throwaway pieces. Yeah. But I don't know. I mean, I I really don't mind watching tape or... um, 
the guy I love that we still call watching tape. It's not tape. It's a video. But yeah, um, I don't, I don't mind watching videos and I don't mind Skype auditions. But yeah, I mean, if there's any, if like, if there's like some like excuse to go to LA and I have the time and like actors I want to see are in LA, I would obviously just go because, you know, like I, I watched you do that for Over My Dead Body and you're totally right. Like doing the in-person auditions, um, made such a big difference. And the, especially the way that you did it for that project, I thought was especially well done and interesting. Um, yeah. Yeah, I was going to say that if if I was doing if like I'd never done Skype auditions before and some and I and somebody asked me like how would you do it what would be the best practice I would say um ask actors to send you videos and use that as like your first round of casting and only use Skype for callbacks because you don't really need to use Skype for like a first round audition because it should just go fast and an actor can just do that themselves and give you like their best take on, on the material, uh, you know, whatever they think is the best take on it right away. And, and through that, you should be able to see like, do I want to see this person again? Cause I yeah. think trying to do like Skype auditions, like first round auditions might just be a waste of everyone's time. And cause you'd have to like schedule them, find out when people are available when you're available and then you only need them for like two minutes. So you might as well just say, just send me a video when you can and then just get a whole bunch of videos. Yeah. I mean, it definitely will save you time. I mean, I, I don't know, like it, it, it was, yeah. I mean, I like doing it for strange thing, especially when it was like this, my project that I'm so passionate about. And it's this thing that I really want to be amazing, you know, and I didn't mind putting the extra time into the audition process, you know, cause like that's the exciting part after you know whatever writing it and trying to get it, get it to go and like actually you know convincing yourself to make the movie you know but um but yeah that i mean that's a very logical like you know time saving thing cuz yeah i mean you just want to be able to see if they can even act at all and you know you don't necessarily need to talk to them for that part of it you know um although i feel like sometimes you can find special people who like maybe not necessarily who wouldn't necessarily perform well but like you just get a really good sense from them from the audition process and then you're like oh yeah maybe that person could be really great you know but but yeah i don't know i think you're overall you're right (laughs) (laughs) do it however you guys want yeah but yeah i don't know um anyways anything else to say about this nope let's move on to topic number two all right. Uh, we've never talked about insurance on the show in two years. We've never once, I don't think, ever brought up insurance and we both use it. And um, this idea came to us from Film Casualty in the East Bay. I'll give them a free plug because we had gone over there and talked to them and and we were like, oh, yeah, we've never actually done a show about insurance. I think it might be hard to fill a whole show about it, but we could talk for it, about it for like 15 minutes. Right? Yeah. I, I swear it seems like we would have talked about it by now because um I've <laughs> I've dealt with it so much in the last few years and you know I wanted I get my own insurance policy I think it was probably like three or four years ago um it kind of all started with strange thing basically <laughs> because that was when I first needed insurance and that was like my introduction to that whole world and I actually paid for short term insurance on that project if you believe it or not which is like. I mean, I'm sure you did that for for um, Spirit Machine, right? Yeah. So it's, I'm trying to think. Like the first film that I got insurance on was because I think somebody on the crew or somebody we were renting equipment from asked if we had insurance, and then um, yeah, we got we got like a just a project insurance just for that project we we're covered. Yeah. Yeah, which I guess is like how you're supposed to do it for short films, um, because you know it's it's supposed to be like a like a movie, you know, and like how a movie you would do it, you do your own insurance policy just for that movie, and that movie has its own LLC and all that stuff. So that's kind of like the same model that people want you to do for short films, um, but it's really expensive to do it that way. It's basically like you know, give or take fifteen hundred dollars, um, you know, a short film. <laughs> which is like a lot of money um, when you're working on such small budgets, you know? Um, But uh, do do you remember how much your insurance cost on uh, Spirit Machine? Well, I've always done it through the insurance that we use at at my company. Oh. And I think they have like a set rate at like less than 2%. You even used a loophole. So because like going through GSP or for your – I don't know if you want to say your company, but going through your company, um, yeah, basically – you're just, um, you're sort of going around, 
the real way you're supposed <laughs> yeah. to do it. Yeah, so I couldn't even give anyone advice of like where to find insurance. <laughs> Basically, <laughs> Timothy is in a situation where he's so lucky he doesn't ever have to really worry about it, <laughs> which is great. <laughs> yeah, um, so don't listen to me. Don't worry about me. I, I paid like less than 2% of my budget in insurance, yeah. which is so low. Oh my God. It was crazy. So we did that for Over My Dead Body. We were able to use Timothy's insurance through, through his company and it was like $35 because our, our our budget was so small. It was ridiculous. I was like, this is like, what the fuck? <laughs> this yeah. is amazing. There's got to be something illegal about it, but... Uh, yeah. I mean, it's all a gray area, right? You know, it's, it's, I, that's what I've been learning about insurance. It's, um, you know, in order to like do it the exact, the exact way you're supposed to, like you, you have to spend a lot of money and, um, you know, if, if you're not like completely a hundred percent honest about every single aspect of your project, um, you know, like if you, you did try to make a claim and they found out about the things that you weren't open with them about, um, then they would, they could deny your claim basically. Um, right. so, so I like think it, there's probably two ways to think about insurance is that you can cut corners just to get that certificate that you need to rent equipment that says you're insured. Right. But then on the back end, if you ever do have a claim arise and you don't have the right insurance in place, it can like, it can come back and bite you and then you're personally responsible for it. So you have oh, to kind yeah. of think about it like both ways. It's like not only just to get the insurance up front, but make sure that you're covered if anything does happen on your set. Yeah, there's like a couple companies where I think you can pay somewhere between five hundred and six hundred dollars to get, um, you know, equipment rental coverage, um, short term, and uh, people would do that all the time when I was uh at the the rental house. Like that's how they would get their insurance certificates so they could rent from me. And um, sure, that's great. They have the piece of paper, but um, that piece of paper probably doesn't actually mean anything if they were to break the red camera they rented from us, you know, or if something was to go terribly wrong. Um, just an example about like what I was talking about with like, you know, if you don't do it the right way or whatever, like, let's say you're making a short film and you have a scene with some guns and um, a stunt and some blood effects. Um, but when your insurance, uh, you know, broker asks you about that stuff, you say, oh no, it's just a, a drama or a comedy or something. And, and you don't, you don't mention the guns and, and the blood and, and the stunt or whatever. Um, then basically you're on the hook because if they were to find out, like, let's say like you needed to, to go and, and, you know, launch a claim with them or file a claim to, to, you know, to get some money back for something that happened, um, if they found out and saw your movie and that you had like blood and a, and a gunshot and a stunt in it, they would be like, Hey, what's this stuff? You didn't tell us about this stuff. And then they'll deny your claim basically because you know, you, you, you basically violated your agreement with them. Um, so it gets really tricky. And, um, you know, for strange thing, I was very honest. Like I talked about the stunts I was doing and the, the special effects and, and everything. And so that was all, you know, included into our price, you know, which is probably why it was like, I think it was somewhere between 1500 and $2,000 or something. Um, but like, yeah, I think you just have to be really careful about that. Um, so, so how do you find a, an insurance broker? Well, I mean, I think you just go online and um, you, you should try to find somebody who does insurance for entertainment specifically because it's just better if you find somebody who's, who does it for movies or for film productions or of some kind, like whether it be commercial or music video or whatever. Um, but I would do a Google search in your area and see if you, if there is a broker near you. Do you think they have to be in your area? Could you hire like an uh, LA insurance? Well, you could. Broker? I mean, I don't, you don't have to like, I don't know, like we have a, a few in the Bay Area and there's a couple that everyone seems to use. Um, Film Casualty is like a new one, which, um, you know, <laughs> is another free plug, but um, they they really seem to know what they're doing and they really feel the pain of the um, filmmaker dealing with insurance and are trying to like lessen that pain. And they're also very serious about making sure everything is done correctly. So um, they they make sure that you're not screwing yourself, basically. Or they try to, right? Um, so I, I don't know. Like, I mean, you could try them. I, I'm, I'm sure they would do claims for or do insurance for anyone in any part of the country, most likely. I can't imagine there being a reason why they wouldn't. You know, my broker is like spends most of his time in Seattle these days. So, you know, um, 
yeah, I don't think it really matters. But yeah, I don't know. I would just do a search or or try those guys or I don't know. I wouldn't say like for any reason like oh you have to go to L.A. to get an L.A. insurance. But I don't think that really matters, you know, because there's people who deal with um, entertainment insurance for. Um, filmmakers in all all parts of the the country i imagine but do you think like a local broker is just going to understand your market a little better probably yeah i mean that's that's what my my guy um who's he's kind of an older guy but like yeah he he used like doing stuff when they were having nash bridges over here and so like he understands like san francisco film production insurance really well you know um but there's there's lots of great people in the bay area you know to to turn to and then once um, you find somebody, what what do you do? Do you call them? Do you email them? Is there like an online form? Well, it looks like for um, Film Casualty, there's an online form. But I, I called my guy and we just had like a really long conversation on the phone. And basically every time with him, it's always a long conversation. But um, <laughs> I talked to some other insurance people um, who, who don't keep you on the phone forever. So it just depends. But yeah, I would call them up, tell them what you're doing. Um, and they would explain the, the rates to you and then they probably would send you a form to fill out and then, um, they would get back to you pretty quickly. I mean, insurance people, it's funny, like, you know, they, they always say, oh, you need like two to three weeks for this or that or whatever. But like, you know, the nature of the business is like, you know, we'll have shoots where you don't, you don't think you need insurance. And then like three days or two days or a day before your shoot, like you're told, oh, I need an insurance certificate. And so you have to be able to get that really quickly. So I've, I've done projects where people, I've gotten insurance certificates turned around same day on projects, you know, but I mean, obviously that's a lot to ask. And then there's also some insurance companies that I've worked with that are based in New York. And so if you're working with a company that's in a New York based company, then you have to like basically like for us in, in California, we have to get there at the, you know, request in like really early. Cause if you get the request in after three o'clock, like their business hours are already done and you're screwed. So like you basically need to get your request in like by nine in the morning in order to give them enough time to get it done by end of day, you know? Um, Cause it does take a couple hours at least, if not longer. Um, is there a standard rate that all insurance companies kind of stick close to, or is it like a, a flat rate? Well, I think it's, it's so what I've, how I understand it is that almost all insurance brokers are basically like middlemen for the bigger insurance companies. So I think no matter who you go to, it's, it's going to be like the same kind of rates that they're going to get back from the people and they just take the same commission across the board. Um, I don't think there's certain insurance brokers that are cheaper than other brokers. Um, maybe we can have a broker on to talk about that, but I, I'm pretty sure it's, um, it's pretty standard across the board and it just depends on your project and how, what, what kind of coverage you need. And then that's, that's what changes the price. Yeah. From what I understand and how it works is, um, yeah, individual people or, or, uh, I don't know, investors come in and they see this kind of like insurance package and let's say like your production is paying a thousand dollars for insurance. And so that package like goes up and says, all right, this production in San Francisco with these parameters is paying a thousand dollars and we need you to, uh, to, um, kind of put your money against this. If nothing goes wrong on that shoot, you get the thousand dollars. If something goes wrong on that shoot, then you pay out whatever, you know, their losses are. So it's like gambling. It seems like. <laughs> kind of <laughs> and you're I just mean, and those people with the money are just hoping that nothing happens on your shoot because i think a traditional insurance is much different where like you know like health insurance is everyone's putting their money into a big pool and then the people that need it are withdrawing money from that pool but i think film insurance sounds more like a gamble that just people with money earn are gambling that that, that nothing's going to go wrong in your shoot and they're going to be able to get the money that you're paying out yeah I, I guess I don't know. I I didn't know any like that deep about it, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I don't know. It sounds it's very interesting, um, and I just think that like you want to just protect yourself as best as possible, right? And um, you know, people take loopholes all the time. Like I personally will will take loopholes, you know, because I have my own insurance policy that covers like my corporate videos and all those kinds of things but it doesn't necessarily cover short films you know but occasionally i'll shoot a short film um without you know getting different insurance for it because it's like you know i can i have all the insurance certificates to get all the things i need you know so it doesn't really matter um it, it would it basically be like it's kind of gambling for me right because if if something were to go wrong 
and I couldn't prove that it was a corporate video shoot, um, then I could get screwed. Might not be covered, yeah. But you don't, but you don't know until it happens. But it's also pretty. I think the blurred the blurred lines for what's a short film and what's a, a corporate or considered a corporate video. I think you can blur those lines too. And if you're doing some promotion in within that shoot, maybe you can get away with it, you know. Um, but I don't know. I would just assume that like, you know, you should just be aware of what you're doing. Like if you are doing that sort of thing, which is like kind, I mean, kind of what you're doing with, with the, your GSP or insurance. Yeah, exactly. From company. Who knows if a claim arose out of any of the short films I've shot with my company's insurance. Like if anything could happen, they might just be like, Oh, but whatever. That's not advertising. That's not under our umbrella. I have no idea, but right. through it, I was able to get certificates of insurance to like, please locations and rental houses and all that. Um, yeah. And I asked permission from the company and they said, cool. So I was just hoping that, that it would cover something that, it, that came up, but I have no idea. Who right. Knows? But yeah. I mean, knock on wood so far in the, how, how many years have I been producing? Like maybe eight years or something at Goodby. I've only had to do one insurance claim on a production. Mm. Um, so I guess, you know, and same thing, short films, I've never had an insurance claim come up. So, you know, I feel like generally nothing happens on shoots, but in the off case that something does, you know, you want to be ready for it. Right. Exactly. I've, I've never had an insurance claim, um, for, um, for one of my own shoots. I've had an insurance claim for a, a camera situation, you know, where a client like, broke a camera, damaged a camera, and then, like, we were, you know, they had a certificate, so then we were going to their insurance, but then it's, like, their insurance basically didn't cover this or that or whatever, so then the guy had to pay us back through it or whatever, and it was kind of a big deal. Um, and then, But there was one time somebody got robbed, and then their insurance didn't cover the robbery. Oh, no way. And it's like, gosh, oh, man, that's so annoying. And it's like, yeah, because he, he left it in the car um, unattended, so... Uh, yeah, so that is not covered under his insurance policy, and that's like not covered on under our insurance policy either, uh, because their insurance is supposed to cover any of that stuff. And so I think we were just like completely fucked in that situation. If it would have gotten stolen on set, would it have been different? Um, I think if it's stolen in his um with him there, like I think it's different. But I think it, since they're not there and they turn their like they left it alone. Then I think, and that's when it got stolen. I think that's the issue, or it wasn't inside their house because then their rentals, their renters insurance or their home insurance could cover it. Or if it's in their studio, then their studio's insurance could cover it. You know, but if it's in a car or something, I think it's not covered. It like falls into the auto insurance. Yeah, they're not going to pay for it. I'm sure there's probably some insurance policies that do cover that, but I think it's not the standard ones. Yeah. Um, Interesting. So your insurance policy, you have like kind of like a blanket for the year where you just pay like one time fee. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do, do you pay, you don't pay like per production anymore. Mm -mm. It's just like a yearly fee. And then what does that cover you for? Like, what is your coverage? So I have auto on? so I can, I can rent trucks, you know, um, unowned auto is what it's called, I think. Um, and then I have, uh, gear insurance for my own equipment. And then I have, um, gear insurance to rent equipment so I can rent like I think up to geez I always try to keep it low but then I, I do a project and it has to go up so I think <laughs> it's like a hundred thousand dollars right now or something stupid like that which is like you know every uh, like every like two shoots a year I have to have it that high and then every time I lower it it ends up like another shoot will come up where I have to have it that high and it's like <laughs> ah fuck well pushing that shit up again god damn um but, uh, but yeah, and then it covers me for, um, you know, basic liability. So that stuff, um, you know, will let me rent, um, you know, spaces, you know, and stuff like that. Yeah. I don't have workers comp, um, you know, although people keep on telling me I should, but you know, for certain, the projects where you kind of need it, um, I can basically get away with getting waivers from crew, you know, or yeah, or it usually just doesn't matter. Although wit workers comp is kind of like the one that, um, you know, if I was to like jump into a bigger realm of productions with my own personal company, that I'd probably need to get it at some point. Cause yeah, that's sort of standard that you should have workers comp, you know? 
Um, yeah, workers' comp isn't included in our agency insurance too. Like that, oh, it isn't. That, wow. Yeah, because I think it it has to do with like how people are paid. I think they like deduct it from paychecks and it gets paid to the government. So it's a di- it's different than insurance. Mm. I think it has to do with like payroll companies. So like to get workers' comp, it has to either go through our accounting department or it has to go through a payroll company. Is like whenever we hire people is how we do it. Well, when you do a SAG job, you need to have workers' comp because that's part of the SAG um, contract. So yeah, I think that goes through like because uh, we use a, a place called Talent Partners, which mm. I think they also pay crew, and mm. so that's a payroll company, and so that payroll company deducts so you they know, pension cover that. and health and yeah and workers' comp and all that They're, stuff. So essentially, are they covering the workers' comp insurance through that payroll company? Yeah, that must be how it works. That's crazy. Yeah. Well, that's cool. I mean, that that's sort of... Because I'm putting together my budgets for my movies right now, and, um, you know, uh, yeah, P&H, whatever it's called, is, is always um, listed on there, which I think is, like, what that goes into. Yeah, you know? right. Um, but yeah, I mean... Insurance is really important, you know, and uh, I feel like you got to call, like, get, get, learn about it. I mean, I know it kind of sucks and it's boring, and I, and I don't even really know all that much about it, but I know enough to, like, you know, talk about it like this and then answer questions and make sure I'm not completely screwing myself, you know? Um, so I think it's, it's good to know. And I mean, I kind of learned it through working at that rental house, right? Cause like I had to deal with insurance certificates and stuff. And then that's sort of, that's how I met my insurance broker was through working at that company. So like when it was time for, to get my own, I just called him. I was like, Oh yeah, this is the guy that we use at Studio B. I'll just call that guy. And that's sort of how it, how it happened. Um, but yeah, I don't know anything else to say about insurance. There's probably a few more things, but no, I think that's that's a good brief. <laughs> I mean, we could talk about anything forever, but yeah, I mean, I don't think there's anything else important. I think the main thing is get it, and and don't don't completely um, loophole it because you want to cover yourself as much as possible for your projects, basically. Yeah, yeah. I think the first project that I used insurance on was Man's Best Friend. Oh really? Oh cool. Yeah, and then before that, the like I had done a few other short films that were like you know five hundred bucks or maybe a thousand bucks, and I didn't because I don't think because I think we were just using like our all our own gear and we were in kind of like just open locations or friends and family houses, so like no one was asking us like, do you have insurance coverage? So it just kind of like never happened. Yeah. Yeah, strange thing was my first one. I mean, I I you know had worked at the company before then, so I I had known about insurance, but I didn't have my own policy until that that project. Yeah. Yeah, and then since then, I've used it on every project. Yeah, I mean, you need it, man. It's like any time that I want my uh, the truck to go out for a job, like you know, there's probably are, there are gaffers and and uh, G and E companies in the world that will send their truck out without insurance. Probably not many, um, but my buddy, uh, Matt Stoop, who is like my guy for all my jobs, like he owns his own trucks now and he will not like let any of his gear or trucks or anything out of his, you know, his shop without an insurance certificate, like even for a freebie short film, it's like he'll do something. Well, <laughs> I shouldn't say that, but like, <laughs> you know, if he was to work for free he still wouldn't do it if um if he didn't have insurance you know and that's kind of like what i've noticed for everybody is like people who who spent like you know hundreds of thousands of dollars on equipment that like they use for their livelihood to like make their money they're not gonna come out and help you for free on something if they're not protected you know unless you get a really great friend but like even then like it's probably not even right for you to ask them like you you want to protect your people you know especially if they're working for free. Um, so that's sort of like why I have my insurance. That's not why, but that's one of the reasons why. Cause I also use it for, for paid jobs. And I, I probably do enough paid work with my insurance that it pays for itself every year. Um, but it's also just for myself too. Cause like, you know, you just want to be protected, you know? Good. I like that wrap up. That was great. Yeah. Cool. Get insurance basically. Don't ignore it. That's what I'm saying. Um, all right. So this last topic, man, fame. <laughs> we might have two more topics depending on how long this goes. Oh, on. really? Oh, we have the other one. Yes. Yeah, something yeah. in Timothy's mind. I like uh-huh. that one. Well, let's just brush through fame because I don't really have a lot to say about it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is like we just kind of dug into uh, 
the archives to see like what are some topics that we had written down and this this came up um this is just something that i've been talking to with a coworker of mine about like why does it seem like there's people so many people are interested in being famous and i know like you can tell yourself that you don't want to be famous that like that's not any that's not in your mind at all but i think deep down inside most people like want to have that <laughs> attention like like you want to be Steven Spielberg, right? You want to be like the person that everyone knows, even if you don't want to be like the recognizable person. Of course, no one wants to be recognizable. I mean, not, uh, not no but one. A, a lot, lot of people pe- do. A lot of people <laughs> don't want to be recognizable. They, they would rather have just like the name. Um, you know, like if you saw Steven Soderbergh, would you, a lot of people probably wouldn't know what he looks like, but they would know the name. And maybe that's probably like the kind of fame that most probably writers and directors probably want because you know, if you're as recognizable as Ron Howard, you're not going to be able to go out. But if you just have like a name that pe- people recognize when you say a film by Ulrich Bursell, people go, oh, Ulrich Bursell. I love that guy. He makes great movies. That's the kind of fame yeah. that I'm I'm talking about. Like, I think I know I definitely would love to have that kind of recognizable name that people know my movies and people know what I that are excited about what I'm putting out in the world. And I'm just curious to know like in your opinion why do you think that we seek that is that because of the that we're following in the footsteps of people we admire or is it like a innate human thing to want to have that kind of attention to be important yeah it's interesting i mean because i guess for me like i don't necessarily want to be famous you know um but i think what i would attribute to what i want more is is reputation like I just want people to know my reputation and 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 it for it to be like you know a positive one, right? <laughs> like I like people to think of me as you know a hard worker and a and a good storyteller and an interesting filmmaker who is always working on some some interesting things, you know, and and trying to do something different and new, and who is an active filmmaker, right? Like I, I I'd rather people just know that I'm making movies and that I'm in the game, you know rather than, you know, people not knowing who I am at all, right? Um, so well, I guess let, let me, that let is me, kind of fame, right? I, I don't know. Well, let me spin it on you a little a little bit, because in the past on this podcast, you've talked about wanting more listeners, and you've talked about wanting more views on your videos. So right. you, are, you have a reputation. People have been seeing your movies. We right. have people listening to this podcast. What makes you want more? Right. Well, I guess it's it's almost like you know, this is kind of weird to say, but it's like, I kind of want it. I want more so I can use it as a tool, basically. Like I want, like, I I also want, (laughs) no, I mean, like I want more listeners because yeah, of course, the podcast, I'm not, let's put the podcast aside for a second. (laughs) Okay. I'm not really talking about the podcast as much. I'm more, more about, um, the views, right? Like you want to have 20 million views on your short films so you can go to investors and go to producers and other people and be like hey look at all the views of my stuff like this these are people who want to watch my movies this is my fan base this is my my you know this is like my proof that i can make something that's sellable right that people want to watch so that's sort of why i want all the views and all that stuff you know because i feel like it's all it's like a currency that you can use for um yeah, trying to get your next project made, right? There's no part of you though that feels that would feel some sort of validation of 20 million people watch Brother right now. Yeah, I mean, I would love it. It would be great. It'd be fantastic, of course. But of course, that's part of it, right? I think you get one view on on a video or one comment from somebody, and you feel validated. You know, like I think. Like, yeah, 20 million of them, of course you'd feel even more validated, right? Because my theory is it's about validation and that we're working in a field that big success equals lots and lots and lots of people seeing it. And so I think there's this equation of like, if I get a lot of eyeballs, if I get a, a lot of interest about my thing, that just means that I'm playing with the big boys. I'm like, I'm validated. And if you're not at that level, then that means you're not succeeding yet. So I think there's like some sort of misconception about like how high you need to be in order to be considered a success. Yeah, that's definitely true. I mean, I think fame and success are sort of tied together in a way that maybe isn't necessarily fair or accurate, you know? Mm Mm-hmm. 
Because like, yeah. you, you think about like Instagram followers or Twitter followers, like all these these counters that we have now on our social lives that are basically just saying like, how famous are you? And and I think that's like some somehow is like feeding into people's validations of themselves. Like how important am I in this world? Yeah. What sucks about that is that a lot of that stuff can be manufactured, you know, like Twitter is, is almost like a game. Like it's like sort of like you, you can play Twitter and get, um, you know, a hundred thousand <laughs> followers or whatever. Um, but you just have to put the time into playing it, you know, and, and doing it right. And like following people and unfollowing or whatever the fuck people do. Right. I don't even know. But, I, so that's why, but then, you know, there are people who are just like naturally get a lot of followers on Twitter from, you know, making interesting posts or for who they are or some other reason why people are going to their Twitter, you know, but um, I feel like that's, that's not necessarily how most people get their views. I don't know, or get their followers. I don't know. What do you think? Do you think that's accurate or do you think that's inaccurate? I think there is some sort of manufacturing of success of this kind of success that we're talking about. And like, I think this goes into the next thing, the next topic, the thing that's been on my mind is like, yeah, we can make a $25,000 film, but does it really matter? And I think that measure of does it really matter is really coming from like, how many people are really going to watch a $25,000 film? And the answer is, it depends. It depends <laughs> on that machine, the machine that manufactures success. If that $25,000 film went to Sundance and won Sundance and was like the talk of the town, everyone would watch it. But I would say that that's the very few and far between those kind of films that like break out in that manner. So I don't think you can think about it in that way of like, oh, how many people are going to see my movie? There's plenty of million dollar movies that get made that no one sees too. I think it's really about just getting something out in the world and not worrying about the millions of views. If you get a hundred views on your tiny little feature film that, you know, that should be enough. Like you go to some festivals and watch it with some people that should be enough. Like it's about reaching the audience that you can and not worrying too much about the millions and millions and millions of views because that's right. just not going to happen for most people. Even if you have a lot of money, it's just not going to happen. Yeah, I, I mean, with like, I feel like we've talked about this before, you know. But like, it's sort of like, what what do you want, right? Like, what are you making your movie for? Like, what's the reason that you're making your twenty five thousand dollar feature? You know. And, uh, I feel like there's a lot of good reasons to do that. Obviously just practice is one, you know, um, telling a story that wouldn't necessarily be told is another. And then, um, you know, kind of trying to step up, right? Like, like I talked, I was at an event the other day and this woman, um, said something really interesting to me. She was like, like, you just want to be in the business of filmmaking. And if you're not making features that get distribution, you're not in the business of filmmaking. So if you're making short films, it doesn't matter how good they are or how great they are. And like, it's like, unless they do these things that we, that we are, we'd all talk about, like win Sundance, get, you know, 20 million hits on, on Vimeo or YouTube or whatever, or, or any of these special things that set, like, will would like kind of set you apart from everybody else. Like pretty much you're not really in the business of filmmaking. So like you, you need to make a feature, make it good be able to either sell it or get a distribution or make your money back on it. Either one of those three things, you know, in either way, pot and, and kind of uh, any of the three, I think really. And then and like now it's suddenly like you're in the business. So like when you approach investors or you talk to, to business people in film, it's like they can see your track record of what you've done as like a professional filmmaker, you know, like I feel like, you know, we, we probably think of ourselves as professional filmmakers, but I don't know, maybe not, but like, <laughs> I don't, yeah, I don't know. I feel like you don't give yourself enough credit one, but, but again, yeah, like, I don't know, is, is short filmmaking a professional film? Probably not. Right. I guess it's, it's more like, I feel the same know, way about commercials though. Is commercial directing, um, a professional filmmaking job? I mean, yeah, it is. Cause there's money. There's people, even if you're not necessarily getting paid that much, people are making money off of your work, you know? So that definitely is a professional thing. Well, um, it's professional, but I mean, is a professional filmmaking? It's commercial filmmaking. Well, well, yeah. I don't know. That's 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 all subjective, it's up for debate, right? Right. Yeah. yeah. I kind of feel like um, it is, 
But again, I'm more liberal with like, you know, what I call a filmmaker, what I would not call a filmmaker. Like I would call a production designer a filmmaker, you know, um, and, and some people wouldn't necessarily call that person a filmmaker. I, I kind of feel like we're all filmmakers, you know, like everybody on a set's a filmmaker in a one way or another. Anyone who contributes to the moving image. Yeah, basically, you know, like we're all putting our blood, sweat and tears into it. You know, we're all busting our asses. I mean... What yeah. about the guy that shoots the Giants games? Well, that's not a that's not a film. So, yeah, but it's more like a film than a Giants game. <laughs> you know, like there's a story, there's a narrative through line. I guess you could say there's a narrative in baseball too, but but from what they're doing as a camera operator on a baseball game is um, is not at all the same as you know a, a DP on a commercial or even you know, a gaffer on a commercial, you know, cause they don't even have gaffers in, um, baseball. <laughs> they just have their lights that are set based on the stadium, you know? So for you, is it, is it about like the narrative nature of filmmaking? Filmmaking to you is like, you're telling a story. Yeah. And crafting it's, it's so like documentary is very narrative as well too. Right. So, um, there's always stories and documentaries. So I wouldn't necessarily say that documentary documentary filmmakers aren't also filmmakers. Of course they are. Right. Um, but, but I think it's more like crafting, like it's, if you're crafting your image, you're crafting your story, you're crafting what you're showing the audience, you know, like, I think that is, um, to me what what separates it you know because if you're like you know shaping light for your subject or for your scene and you're placing the camera here rather than here or you're you know you're trying to guide the story through to a certain destination either known or unknown to you i feel like that's more to me what filmmakers are doing than you know a camera op at a you know warriors (laughs) playoff game or something you know not to say that's not awesome. Of course, that's awesome. But that's just a different type of awesome, you know. Um, but yeah, this this I love this twenty five thousand dollar movie question because does it really matter? Does it really matter? Does it really, well, I mean, the other thing I think I think of two things that happened on the podcast recently. One is Oren from Just Shoot It said, like, if I worked at a pencil factory, I want to want to work at a pencil factory that made pencils that nobody used. Um, and, and then Rick said, how many hundred thousand dollar movies do you guys watch? Like, how many do you actually go out and watch? And, you know, those two things kind of stuck with me. It's like for Rick, the answer is not many. And the ones that I do are the ones that somebody else has vetted for me that have that has said, oh, this won awards, this is worth your time, or it's been picked up by a big distribution company. And it feeds into this machine that tells me, you know, what to watch. Like, I'm, it's very rare that I'll go and I'll find like a movie like Rebecca's um, on my own and, and watch that. And so it's like, if I'm not doing it, then who is, you know, like I should be doing it. I have a podcast about independent filmmaking. I should be watching these small films. And so that just leads me to this big question about like, if I'm going to go out and make this $25,000 feature, who can I expect to watch it? And do I need to even worry about that? Well, I think that you, well, you do need to worry about it to some extent because like you want to make sure that it's going to be good enough for people to watch and to get on VOD and all these other places. Um, but I, I, another side of it, I don't think you necessarily do need to worry about that because as long as it's good enough to be, um, distributed or to like either you do it yourself, self distribute distribution, you know, like get it onto Hulu, Amazon Prime, um, all those places, or you can actually get it to a distributor and, and then they, they, they'll want to take it on, you know, either pay you up front for it or give you a deal where you're going to make some money on the back end, like either way, um, I think that's like the bar that we should be shooting for is like to be able to get it into the world in a way where people can see it, you know? Um, and I used to think that that meant that you have to get, um, distribution, but I think now you can self distribute and it's totally fine. Like I think it, as long as you're on platforms that people recognize, like iTunes, Amazon Prime, Hulu, you know, other VOD services, I feel like, yeah, you're, you're there. That's totally cool, you know? And if, if you do that on your own and you're keeping all the money for yourself, like we had with that Sriracha uh, film film guy, um, can't remember his name, Glenn. Was Glenn? Anyways, <laughs> it's not Glenn. It's not Glenn. Greg. Say <laughs> with a G. Give me a break. Griffin Hammond. Griffin. Sorry, Griffin. <laughs> not Glenn. 
All right. Yeah, with Griffin's film, I mean, that was a great example of somebody who just did it themselves. And, you know, that movie is known and out in the world, and he made a little money back on it, you know, and still making some money back on it, which is great. Or if it's like Sean Lynch, um, who his movie, Prep School, he found a, a, distribu- a distributor, and they put it out, and it's on Hulu, it's on Amazon Prime, it's on, um, you know, some of these other VO. <coughs> Excuse me some of these other VOD platforms and um, yeah, it's uh, it's doing great. And that's like kind of helping him get his next movie made, you know? So I just kind of feel like those, that's sort of the goal is like to have that first movie, be able to show it to people, prove that you can make a movie, prove that you're a real filmmaker and that you're in the business of filmmaking. And then from there, it's like now you, you, you make your next movie. Like even James Cameron did that, like with Piranha 2, right? Like he, that, that was his first movie. That was his proof that he could make Terminator, you know? So I feel like people get in their heads. It's like, oh, my first movie needs to win Sundance. My first movie needs to be like Jared Hess's Napoleon Dynamite or something. And, you know, while that would be great, like we all can't have that story. Like, you know, we all have to start somewhere. And, you know, I think it's totally fine if you start with a $25,000 movie. Start with a $10,000 movie. Start with a whatever, $50,000 movie. Just get a movie out of you. So, like, you can learn, make some mistakes, hopefully make it good enough where it's going to get do those things for you. And then you make the next one, and that one will be better, and the next one will be better, and the next one will, and, you know, just keep on going, you know? What if you make a movie that's so terrible that you don't get another opportunity? Well, you burn it like a... Uh, Tarantino did right that's that yeah. famous story we talked about that before where he like made that movie and it was so bad that he just burned it and then he made Reservoir Dogs so um well and yeah. I've seen it sounds like from the backstory in Reservoir Dogs like that movie might have not been as good as it is if they just didn't get lucky with Harvey Keitel mm. because it sounds like they were just going to go shoot it for like a hundred thousand dollars and probably use like no-name actors and then somehow they had a connection to Harvey Keitel that that like up their budget and then they started getting all these other really amazing actors in and on it Mm. so that could have been burned too who knows oh interesting yeah Um, well if we all get a connection to our harvey Keitels of the world (laughs) and then we can uh right make things happen yeah he's so good in that movie my gosh piranha 2 $145,000 budget really i don't remember the backstory in that but like he james cameron didn't finish it did he I don't really know. I just know the stories of him, like, being in Italy, shooting that movie, and, like, having, like, these, like, being, like, really sick, and then having these crazy dreams about Terminator, and, like, that was, like, sort of, like, the beginning of writing that movie. Because, yeah, he is, he shares directing credit with Avidio G. Asanitis. Hmm. Sounds Italian. Very. <laughs> well, let's look at, um, just for one more example, uh, Joe Dante. Because he mm. started out making really low budget movies. Because mm-hmm. he, yeah, he was also from the Roger Corman. 1976, Hollywood Boulevard. 1978, Piranha. Oh, so he did the first Piranha. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> yeah, he directed the first Piranha for, oh wow, they had a lot of money. $770,000. Wow. That's almost a million. Oh my gosh, so much money. <laughs> well, back then, think of that. Think of it. It's probably more like $200,000 back then um, because of, you know, all how much money was going to film and how much things cost. And, you know, there wasn't all the technolo- technology that we take for granted now, you know, so. Well, yeah. that's like one last thing I just want to say is like, it seems like that era of the million dollar indie film is just dying or almost dead. And it's really now turning into this like $100,000 feature film business for indie filmmakers. I don't know if a lot of people are making money at it, but it just seems like that's just the natural thing that people are doing. And maybe we're just all going to flood the market and we're just going to kill film altogether. Who knows? But <laughs> I feel like... God, that's this, so depressing to say such a, such a, such it, a thing. It is depressing to think about. Like there's just so many choices. Um, people like choices. That I think, that you know, that's my argument. Like people want to be able to like scroll through their VOD channels and and look through tons of different movies till they find the one weird movie that speaks to them, you know? Um, well, that's, I, I, what, that's what I'll say about that is like the, the idea that you're going to get millions of views or like a ton of money, I think probably across the board, we all have to change our perceptions of that or expectations of that because I think that 
as a society, like as a culture, we're just fragmenting into smaller and smaller groups. And really, it's just about making a movie that appeals to one small group rather than this big mass appeal. And I think that's even a, a bigger argument to just go make the movie you want to make and not think about mass appeal. Like just make a movie that appeals to your sensibilities and there will be like a, an audience for it. And it doesn't have to be a big audience if your film is only $25,000. Like you can make a small movie and you can make something that appeals to just a small group of people and that's okay. And I think that's kind of where we're headed anyways. I think the the big mass market appeal movies are going to be like the Marvel things and Star Wars. And, you know, it's going to be interesting to see where independent film settles in all of this, but it, it seems like there's an opportunity to do something. And rather than us going after kind of like a big market, I think if we can find our niche, it might be that we might be making more interesting stuff than otherwise. Yeah, that's true. And like, don't necessarily worry about like the notes when people say things like your character is not likable enough or this or that or the other, you know, um, just because it's like, yeah, well for my movie, the story that I'm telling and the vision I have that this is the right thing for that character. So, you know, sorry, it doesn't fit into your, you know, Hollywood idea of what a movie needs to be or, you know, your script, your, your book, you know, or whatever, like doesn't follow the, the pattern that all movies are supposed to follow or whatever, you know, like, I think that's okay. Like break your formulas, break the patterns, do something different, you know? Yeah. Be bold. Um, especially if you're going to be able to do it for under a hundred thousand dollars. Yeah. Right. You know, that's There's like the time more, to be bold. more money, more risk. And you have to mitigate that risk by playing it safe. But I think if you're making small, tiny things, like, just do something crazy and just, you know, follow your heart and, and don't worry about like, oh, am I going to turn people off with this? You know, just try it. It's it's such a small gamble. I think it's kind of worth it. That's what I'm telling myself anyways. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I think it's, uh, I think you just need to do it. You need to do it and you need to be bold and you need to be exciting and you need to make the movie that's the truest to your vision as a filmmaker because that's the only way that you're going to, you kind of stand apart from the crowd, you know, and everybody else who's doing it. And for um, God's sake, go seek out small independent films. I know there's a ton of them on Twitter and it gets like overwhelming because everyone's always like support indie film. And you're like, I'm not going to watch your little tiny film. But if there's just like right. some some film that you see that just has like you're interested in a little bit, you know, throw down the two bucks or whatever they're asking for and just watch it. And if, it, if you don't like it, then, you know, you supported them with two bucks and, you know, what's two dollars? But yeah. I feel like that's kind of like the challenge that I, I'm giving myself is like, I need to take some risks on these indie filmmakers and tr and check them out and just see what I like. Cause I really liked Rebecca's film and I probably, you know, wouldn't have normally sought that film out um, unless I had a podcast like this. And maybe I would happen to see it at a film festival, which is like another great place to see indie films. But um, those kind of films, you know, like her film's not going to be, in a huge theatrical release or anything it's going to be a very small film so like those you know those kind of films i think are worth seeking out because how else are you going to see them you, you know it's going to take some energy they're not going to be written yeah. up in entertainment weekly yeah exactly um i agree see small movies and i need to do it too i need to try to jump on that and see more small stuff i I'll, i've been watching more of these like one million two million dollar indies that are just are all over netflix you know like with with a star or two stars in them but yeah i was i watched one the other day and i just i had to turn it off it just was not, not that good. good yeah yeah it's uh, too bad yeah i mean that's probably going to be the case with a lot of films but you know if you find that diamond in the rough yeah worth it like i've i watch a lot of foreign films because <clears throat> i feel like they suffer from the same problem where they don't get watched often there's like probably a bigger market for them than super low budget indies um but it's so fun to like see a foreign film that like you just know that most americans haven't seen and you're just like man that was so cool like I, why doesn't everybody know about this movie? And you just realize it's just because of that machine. That's, you know, the media machine that tells us what, what to watch, what's worth our time. Right. One last thing. That's what one of the things that Rick Bosner told me was like, you know, make your $25,000 movie, but then spend $25,000 on the, the PR for it. 
And that'll, that'll probably be more worthwhile than, or, or what did he say? He was like $30,000 on the movie, $20,000 on, on PR, whatever, you know, something like that, where you it just makes so much sense, put if, a lot of money into the pr- promotion. It's true. If you made a hundred thousand dollar feature that was like decent, and then you put in like a million dollars into marketing it, you could probably make it seem like it's a really awesome movie that people have to see. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's not what my budgets look like right now. Like my budgets are like, you know, that's out of reach for most of us. But I'm just saying like as a business model, I'm sure there's probably somebody that's going to try that. Like Roger Corman probably was in that camp where he would just like make small movies and then put a lot of money into marketing them. Right. Well, I don't know. It's it's probably like 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 you know, I have a budget for um my one of my movies at like 150 or whatever. I'm sure Rick would be like, "Yeah, take take uh take that 50,000, put it into PR and then just make the movie for 100,000." Yeah, exactly. And cut the corners and it's like, "Oh god, like it took me so long just to get my budget down to 150." Yeah, like, right. how could I possibly cut out another $50,000? It's like, "Well, that's how you you have to figure it out, you know, like because that's more important. Here's what you do: is you offer your crew points. Yeah. So then they work for less, <laughs> and then you you take fifty thousand out. Of, you say, I want you to work for less because I want to take that money and I want to put it towards marketing, and that's going to ensure that this is a bigger success than if we just put it out there. Yeah. Well, I I think <laughs> I think they would go for that if it was um you know uh. Yeah, a low budget and points, but like if you're if you're if you're already at the lowest lowest amount that you can possibly pay people, um, and you're trying to get it under that number, uh, I don't think people are gonna work for like fifty dollars a day and points, you know. And you, I mean, and that's not even legal. Like, you, <laughs> you, you'd be better off um, not paying them anything, and and then ask them to work for points. But I don't think anyone's gonna do that, you know. At least not the crew that you want. Um, you know, but I mean, I'm sure there are crew out there who would do that, but I don't know. It's like, you don't really want to, I don't really want to ask people that I, I want at, at this point, I want to be able to pay people at least something that's reasonable, you know? Yeah. Um, I don't know if that's possible if you want to do really low budget films though. <laughs> right. I think you have to get like, yeah, your four friends together and do it more like Rebecca did and just yeah. make a movie with a tiny ass crew. Exactly. And, and do that i think Lindsay was right like you know we we are at a disadvantage because we work with bigger crews and we know what real rates are and it's really hard for us to get out of that mentality because i'm in the same boat i want to pay people what they're worth or at least like a fair rate maybe we're not going to pay them what they normally get but at least something that's not gonna uh, put them out of out of business (laughs) you know like i want to i want to at least cover your rent and your car and your you know, the, well, your food. It's only going to be what? I mean, if, if, if you're keeping it reasonable, you're only going to really have them for 15 days. So hopefully the other 15 days of the month, they can be working real jobs to pay for their rent. And the 15 days on your job will just be like, yeah, just enough to get by. <laughs> so what do you just really quickly, what do you think is like a fair day rate to offer just a general crew member? on a 15 day shoot. Well, I guess it depends on how you want to do it. You know, like, are, are you trying to come up with like a flat rate to pay everybody the same? I or would, are you trying... I think that's the smart way to do it. It's just like everyone on the crew is working for this rate. Like, are you in or yeah. are you out? I, I just, you go back to something a friend told me. He was like, you know, none of my guys work for under $200 because anything under $200 is like, you know, like less than what some PAs get paid, you know, and I can't have my guys be working for, for less than what a PA would make. And so that's kind of how I came up with like the $200 number. And I've been floating that by some people and, you know, they, you know, they seem okay with it for, for like the first, the first feature. I don't know if they would do it for multiple features, but I think the first one I could probably get them to do that, you know? Um, And that's for a 10 hour day. Uh, no, no, 12, 12 hour day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. For a feature, you need the 12 hours, man. Cause like, you're just, especially if you're going to try to shoot a movie in 15 days, like, I mean, you could maybe do it in 10 hour days, but oh my God, like, you know, that's going to be really hard to do. I mean, yeah, it's going to be hard to do because <laughs> if you're trying to shoot a movie that you really want 20 days to shoot, but you're shooting it in 15, like you you need every minute of the day to do that you know and like yeah 12 hours but like no ot right like you just basically promise that you'll never go into ot with the 12 hours and that like maybe some days you'll wrap early if you can you know 
but like, but never keep them over the 12 hours. And that, you know, going to back to one of our other guests, Yumi, she did such a good job of that. That movie I worked on with her, she, we, I think we went into OT for like a half hour once and it was only for part of the crew and it wasn't for the whole crew. And it was like, it was like once I was like, my God, that's amazing. Cause like a lot of the other projects I've worked on, you're constantly going over, you know, but, uh, yeah, good on her for that. Well, let's end on this note then to, to that point. Like if you're not paying people, you have to treat them right. And pay, feed them well. Feed them well and make sure that you're not taking advantage of the situation because you're already not paying them enough. So you, yeah, they just got to, you, you know, you're in service of them at that point. I'm like, thank you. Thank you so much on your knees. Oh my God, you're the best. Thank you. Yeah. And I think one of the other things someone told me, I don't remember who, but they were saying that like, you know, having the good attitude as a director, like the head of the production, whoever that is, if they're a positive, happy, like happy, encouraging, like person who's like, you know, just nice to be around, like that's going to make a big difference. Whether you're like, if in the versus the pompous, arrogant, <laughs> I'm telling you how it is. I have so much experience, like jerk off who like obviously doesn't have that much experience because if they did, they wouldn't be making a hundred thousand dollar movie. You know, like I think that attitude goes a long way. I was talking to somebody about that the other day and they were talking about old projects and they were saying that like that mentality of the director makes it such a big difference in the experience and in the, the overall final film too, you know? Yeah. So cool. Luckily we're, we're both not monsters. We're, so. yeah, we are such nice guys. <laughs> Well, something like that. Um, anyways, uh, I guess we don't have time to share stuff, so we should just get out of here. Yeah, let's get out of here. Let's go back to work. Okay. All right. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Check out our website, makingmoviesishard.com, where you can find links to the things that we talked about in this episode. Or if you want to just get in contact with us, you can email us at podcast at makingmoviesishard.com or find us on Twitter and Facebook with the handle at podcast. Um, and then of course we love iTunes reviews. So, you know, go on iTunes, give us a star rating, write something down. If you feel like it, we haven't gotten a new one in a while. So we'd love to hear from you guys. Let us know if you like the show or if you don't like the show, uh, what we can do better. And thanks Ulrich. Good episode. And yeah, we'll thank you, Timothy. Talk to you next week. <laughs>